ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 15 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I am Nick Garisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. It is time for the fantasy football industry to take out the trash. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What are talking about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. It's my quarterback. What the hell's going on out here? I cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep a trick the ball down the field, boys. I saw, son. I saw. Hello? You play to win the game. Hardly. Sends the Saints to the Super Bowl. One of the primary purposes of this podcast was to report to my listeners what's going on in the fantasy football community of experts. For example, how are the fantasy experts re- reacting to breaking news? Which players are being hotly debated? What are the best arguments I see for and against drafting certain players among the experts? And I track all this stuff daily so I can keep my listeners apprised on what the experts in the industry, what all the sharks are saying. And right now, unfortunately, it saddens me to say that the conversation within the fantasy football industry is currently not about their takes on players or their best strategies in fantasy football. It's about an incident concerning one specific fantasy football expert, Bobby Sylvester, who is well known in the fantasy community and has worked for a very popular website, fantasypros.com, for quite some time. And it's fair to say that he is one of the three or so lead analysts there. And he has an audience of hundreds of thousands of fantasy football fans. And Bobby Sylvester sent a very creepy video via direct message to a woman, the message of which stated in pertinent part, I knew you were going to make this effing difficult, but I always win, I always take what I want, and you're not going to change that. And the video was kind of dark, kind of creepy. And the victim he sent it to claims that it was sent solely because she did not answer him or follow him back upon his request. And in my opinion, there's really no other logical explanation or purpose for the video other than it being a threatening way of him warning her that he was going to convince her or slash force her to sleep with him. I don't think there's really any other way to take the video, but that's just my opinion. And it is noteworthy that he shot this video with a fantasypros.com banner as the background, which is relevant at least from the perspective of the company, fantasypros.com, and the company you know, had to decide whether or not they were going to let Bobby Sylvester go. And FantasyPros.com did an internal investigation of the incident. But since word of the investigation went public, several women are screenshotting and posting past private conversations between them and Bobby S. Usually the context is Bobby trying to pick up women online in inappropriate ways, i.e. sexual harassment. And I pulled one example that's making the rounds, and I'm going to read it out loud, uncensored. It, it does contain vulgarity. So if you're listening you know, in a room with children, please pause the podcast or skip 30 seconds ahead. The direct message conversation dated February 24, 2020 reads as followed. Bobby initiates by saying, you'll be glad you accepted this message. Make good money. 200K plus who listen to my podcast think I'm funny, and I know how to fucking tease a pussy real good. 
And the woman responds, I would not date a guy who thinks it's acceptable or appropriate to DM a girl a message like that, especially the last line. Now he does go on to apologize and he says that he won't do it again in the future with other women, but based on what I've read from other women, his apology has no merit. And it's also quite relevant that Bobby is married with three kids. At least I think he's still married, maybe not for long. And the fantasy community is chiming in on this, you know, I want to call it a scandal, but this unfortunate incident. And the vast majority of experts among the industry are calling for the termination of his employment from fantasypros.com. And many are screenshotting letters that they are sending to the company. And this was making huge waves throughout several threads on Twitter, Reddit, and other websites. And I don't, I don't mean this as a joke or a, a minimization of the actual movement, but this is fantasy football's version of the Me Too movement. And it's interesting because the fantasy football industry, the community of experts, is comprised of, I don't know, probably about 90% males. I think that's fair to say. But my initial reaction upon seeing this news flood my fantasy football's based Twitter feed was actually optimism for the future. Because I was pleasantly surprised by the overwhelming support of the victims and the criticism of Bobby's actions. Experts everywhere are calling out this dude's sexual harassment for being a sexual predator and just an overall asshole. But I'm also seeing all these fans of Bobby's or whoever, you know, have these heated debates concerning whether or not Bobby should be fired for the video for his quote unquote mistake. And the main retorts are, you know, this is cancel culture. Everyone makes mistakes. And it doesn't affect fantasy football, so he should just apologize and get back to work as normal. And my personal favorite, guys do this all the time, so what's the big deal? We should not be normalizing this type of behavior. This type of approach of picking up girls online via dating apps, even in person, it does happen all the time. This type of behavior is quote-unquote normal in that sense, but it should not make it acceptable. It's normal to want to punch your boss in the face sometimes. That doesn't make it acceptable to actually do it. It's normal to pick your boogers out of your nose. That doesn't make it acceptable to do in public, though. It's normal to be mad at a professional athlete for having a bad game. But it certainly does not make it acceptable to tag him after the game with some insulting comment. That's a huge pet peeve of mine. But just because people do something mean doesn't mean it should be accepted. And just because you may think about something doesn't mean you should act upon it. That right there is what separates humans from animals. The ability to process thoughts without acting upon them. The ability to actually think about consequences of actions. Why do people do this? Why do people talk to women like that? That shouldn't be normal. It's definitely not acceptable. And there's no excuse for this guy. It aggravates me when people think, A, that this is not a big deal because, quote-unquote, guys do it all the time. He's like 30-something years old. He's not a teenager. He's not a 15-year-old high school kid trying to be cool who doesn't know any better. He's an adult, three children, married. And he's scavenging through women's DMs, demanding them to follow him and bragging about his fantasy football podcast. Which, side note, boasting about your fantasy football podcast to pick up women, that's a really bold strategy. And... I'm not a single guy anymore. I'm a married man. So maybe I've lost touch with the game or how to flirt. But damn, that's your opening line? 
And then there's the guys who try to appear like they have any resemblance of decency by acknowledging that it's a mistake in passing, but saying there should be no consequence. Why? This isn't a one-time mistake. This is a pattern. You think this is the first time that this creep has done this? No. This guy is toxic waste. And any guy who talks to girls like this is straight garbage. Why give him a pass? You think everybody should be a disrespectful douchebag to women as long as they apologize for their mistake afterward? No. There are consequences to actions. There should be ramifications. Otherwise, there's no incentive to improve. When people start losing their jobs because of the way they treat people, that's a good thing. Let's pull out the weeds. Let's weed out the weak. Why would anyone argue that? I'll tell you why. Because the people who make this argument that there should be no consequences as long as they apologize, that they should just keep their jobs, they're the same people who do this kind of stuff. And they're afraid because at some point they're going to get caught mistreating women or gays or Jewish people or anyone. It doesn't matter. The fact is, if you aren't doing stuff like Bobby, then you should have no problem whatsoever with seeing him fall. People in powerful positions, people with influence, people with massive amounts of followers need to be setting a good example, not threatening women who don't follow them back, saying, I know how to fucking tease a pussy real good. You don't even know this woman. What are you, starring in a porno? And people say, oh, this is cancel culture. You think this is cancel culture? Is cancel culture in soft society going too far? Arguably, yes, sure, in some cases. But this isn't a situation where we don't have all the facts or we don't know the context. This isn't a situation where times have changed. It's not a situation where we found evidence of a video from 1970 that, you know, today, 50 years later, is seen as offensive. This is just stupid and disrespectful regardless of what generation you grew up in. And you can call it cancel culture all you want. I'm calling it good culture. I want people who talk to women like this to be canceled. Society is a better place without creepy dudes like Bobby S. I don't want my future daughters to have to put up with perverts like him. And Bobby, you got three kids. Is this how you're going to teach your sons to act towards women? Are you the type of person that you want your daughters dealing with? Disrespecting women. So rampant. Such a sad state of affairs. Sometimes literally. And the number of inappropriate messages slash sexual harassment comments that women with any sort of platform get nowadays is unbelievable. Their DMs are flooded with them. You can't read the comments in someone like Kay Adams' tweets without seeing I'll let you sit on my face from just thousands of creepy internet dudes. It's absolutely appalling and it's just so pathetic. And the internet is getting so divisive and political. But the craziest thing about all this to me is somebody will say something that you disagree with and my reaction will be, oh, that's an interesting or different point of view. I'm not going to comment. I'm just going to go on and continue living my life. And if I want to read up more on what they're saying, I'll do it later. But so many people just have this natural instinct to just comment immediately and just fire away these ridiculous and violent takes like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. I'll burn your house down. Or go kill yourself. And I see it with fantasy football analysts. Not even heated political conversations. 
two women who are making waves in the fantasy football community right now, the Ball Blast fantasy football girls, Kate and Michelle, both of them so smart, and we need more women in this industry. But one of the main reasons that there aren't is because of the barriers to entry and not traditional barriers from you know your employers, but just the fans, just the people you have to interact with on a daily basis when you are a fantasy football analyst. Because so many arrogant men are just so rude to them and dismissive of their takes. And Kate and Michelle can cite off like an evidence-based opinion about a player in fantasy football and their replies are just so intense and vile for no reason. Oh, you think Cam Akers is going to bust this season? Wow, burn in hell, you bitch. Excuse my language, but it's true. It's just a harsh reality. A price of entry for being a woman in this male-dominated field. No wonder we don't see a lot of female fantasy analysts. Who would want to deal with this? It's painful to watch this unfold in the extreme overreactions of what are basically, in essence, fantasy football opinions. I mean, that's the craziest thing to me. And I get that it's not just women who are bombarded by these insecure internet low lives. Some people call them trolls. They like, to, they like to tell themselves that they are trolling. But rating somebody you don't know for an opinion that's different than yours is really just a language disguise for being a total dick. This happens to guys too. I'm not ignoring that. But people just can't argue respectfully anymore without taking major personal offense to something and flipping out or resorting to name calling and personal attacks at their opponent. They can't do it. People can't argue the merits of a case without taking legitimate political discourse and even just disagreements about something we play for fun, fantasy football. It's just a, truly a lost art. I mean, where are we at in society when people are flipping out and losing their shit when a fantasy football analyst says to expect fewer touchdowns from a player that you like? And it's never, oh, well, actually, I think you may be miscalculating because you aren't taking this into account, or maybe you're undervaluing that, and here's why. No, no, it's never like that. It's, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Go watch some football, girl. I hope you can't procreate because then your children will be as dumb as you are. I mean, what is your problem? And you can blame the media for divisiveness. You can blame our current president past leadership, society, COVID. You can sit there and blame whatever you want for this heated political climate or why everyone is seemingly on edge. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to individuals being respectful. The golden rule, the first thing you learn in kindergarten, treat others as you wish to be treated. Just be a good guy. It's not that hard. Just be a good guy. I don't know, man. I feel like I'm ranting right now, but I just want, I just don't think there's any place for the way that Bobby S. spoke to those women. And I loved seeing all of the experts stand up for these victims, these women, because they think that the way that Bobby S. treated them, they think that Bobby S. is deplorable rubbish. They don't want to be associated with them, and they don't want people like him part of the fantasy football industry. And every now and then, you have to take out the trash. Let's move forward and get back to fantasy football analysis here. Let's talk about some breaking news. And that concerns Darius Geis. And unfortunately, this also has to do with treating women poorly, even in a much more extreme sense, because the Washington Post reports that Darius Geis was arrested on domestic violence-related charges. And the charges include three counts of assault and battery, destruction of property, one count of strangulation. Now that's a felony. 
And Washington just cut Geis. And as far as Geis is concerned, he's going to face at least a six-game suspension per the NFL's domestic violence policy if and when another team gives him a second chance. And what a big letdown he has been in the NFL. I think we can safely say that he's been a major bust. And Geis had first-round potential, first-round talent in the NFL draft. And I actually mocked him to the Eagles at pick 32. And he slid in the draft reportedly due to an addiction to video games. And that was the rumor, at least. That was supposedly the main extent of his character concerns. But based on what a few local sources have told me, people who knew Geis and remember, you know, he was at LSU, which is where I attended college. So this isn't just random. You know, but based on what I've heard in the last few days from buddies of mine, let's just say that the recent incidents are not all that surprising. And the video game addiction was likely just a cover-up for what the NFL teams were really concerned about in terms of his character flaws that caused him to slide in the NFL draft. And honestly, I wish I had known about some of the stuff I've recently heard from several sources because I definitely would not have mocked him in round one. And I definitely would not have been as high on Darius Guys as I was during his rookie season. I also want to say that I think it's good that Ron Rivera, head coach of the Washington football team, made this move because Rivera is genuinely one of the Great guys in the NFL, and he's there to change the culture, and and he's doing so with a no-tolerance move like this. But that's all ancient history now, and I wish his past victim or victims all the best in their emotional and physical recovery. And I hate transitioning from this stuff because it's awkward and it's a little cold, but this is a fantasy football podcast, and the question is, how does Geis' release affect fantasy football drafts? And the Washington football team's death chart at running back, is a barren wasteland of near extinction. Adrian Peterson, lead back last season, 211 carries for 898 yards, five touchdowns. He only had 17 catches for 142 scoreless yards. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on AP because we kind of know what he is at this point. He's a shell of his former self at age 35, but he still runs hard. But he's also sort of a tell at this point because teams sort of know that when he's in the game, it's likely going to be a run because he's not effective in the passing game. So we know his upside, especially in PPR leagues. And that's probably what he did last season. 9.8 points per game. RB 33 in scoring. Nothing to write home about. And Peterson has seen only 49 targets in the last 31 games over the last two seasons. So the Washington football team offensive coordinator, Scott Turner, told reporters earlier this offseason that there's a role for the type of back that Adrian Peterson is. And Turner added that Peterson can be good in checkdown situations or great for play action in terms of his usage in the passing game. So I think we can expect Adrian Peterson to be the opening day starter, but he likely won't be the first Washington running back selected in fantasy drafts because that will probably go to Antonio Gibson. And the team drafted Antonio Gibson 66th overall in this year's draft. He's a rookie coming in, so he hasn't had quite the amount of time to learn how to pick up blitzes, learn how to run routes properly in the NFL. Um, Probably he may barely know the playbook at this point. All he's had is really Zoom meetings. Excuse me, Zoom meetings. They just started training camp. But it's a high investment for a player who who is seen as a great athlete and really dominant in college with the ball in his hands. And to that respect, PFF, Pro Football Focus, credits him with 16 broken tackles on only 33 carries last year and 17 tackles on 38 receptions. Antonio Gibson averaged 15.6 yards per touch. However, there's a massive red flag here. He played sparingly. 77 career offensive touches. That's it in college. 77 career offensive touches. I will repeat. Limited touches. To say this guy's limited touches, that's a massive understatement. 
he had barely any. And Antonio Gibson primarily played wide receiver for the Memphis Tigers. And last year, or two years ago, we saw Daryl Henderson come out, who was a total stud at running back from Memphis, and who was the lead back there and received a lot more touches than 77 career offense touches. Hundreds. And Henderson obviously had a very slow rookie season. It took He's still adjusting to the NFL. So you would think Gibson, who has way less experience at running back at the same college for Memphis, would also have a similar tough transition. But Gibson, six foot flat, 228 pounds. He was a, mainly a wide receiver, 4.39 speed. It makes him intriguing. It's, it definitely is a versatile depth option. And he also, you know, he could be returning kicks here. He's a great kick returner in college as well. And the Washington football team head coach, Ron Rivera, said that running back slash receiver Antonio Gibson has a quote-unquote skill set like Christian McCaffrey. And he's a little bigger than Christian, but he's got a skill set like Christian. That's what he said. And he's a very versatile young football player that we think is going to be a guy that can get on the field for us early and contribute. And Rivera said this after the draft. And Gibson was actually designated as a wide receiver when he was selected at number 66 overall, but has since been discussed as a running back who's kind of going to align all over the field, all over the formation. And according to team beat writer John Keim, the team views Gibson as a Swiss Army knife type of player. And Gibson was a very popular sleeper among the experts. His ADP was 149 overall, but it was 110 overall in FFPC high stakes leagues. So the experts have been on this guy for a while now. And now Gibson's ADP is about to skyrocket. Probably into round eight or nine, if I had to guess. And what makes him so attractive as a late round running back target or a zero RB target is the backfield uncertainty. The untapped potential, sure, that's also there. Um, but we mainly, mainly that we know we can get a running back who's going to catch, be able to catch passes. So for PPR leagues, that is extremely valuable. Studies have shown that a target is worth about 2.5 times more than a carry in a full point PPR format. And the other aspect that experts love is Scott Scott Turner is the offensive coordinator and he's son of North Turner and North Turner hugely successful track record giving running backs the rock rarely has a North Turner backfield been a committee and he's talked up or he's coached up some excellent running backs that have thrived in fantasy football dating back to all the way to Emmett Smith LT in his prime Adrian Peterson for one year he had Christian McCaffrey the last two seasons and Scott Turner has been grooved groomed working under North Turner. So you can deduce that Scott Turner may prefer to give his lead ball carrier the vast majority of the touches. And before I get into the negatives about Gibson, I do want to lay out the stage for the current competition on the roster. It's not much, but we need to get an overview of this backfield. Adrian Peterson and Antonio Gibson are the primary candidates for touches, but Peyton Barber is there. And ESPN John Kimes report that Washington believes Peyton Barber is an every down, has every down ability. Spoiler alert, he does not. But Peyton Barber, he seems to get more touches than fantasy managers would like. He must be good in practice. He must do all the right things. And Washington RB coach Randy Jordan said that he gives you a thump just like Adrian Peterson does. He's a pro's pro. So that's kind of that typical coach speak there of you know, a veteran running back that you would want to give more touches than fantasy managers would care for. And pass catching scat back, J.D. McKissick is also there. They went out and signed him, and he is what I just meant. He's kind of a specialist in the passing game. And Bryce Love is also there. And he's kind of a wild card in, it, in all this because if he's healthy, you can make the case that he's the most talented running back of the bunch. And, and Love, Bryce Love, is somebody 
who passed his physical after recovering from multiple surgeries in his knee, including a second surgery to the ACL tear he sustained two years ago. But in his final year at Stanford, he was dominant. I mean, he rushed for over 2,000 yards, piled up 19 touchdowns, averaged 6.8 yards per carry in 49 games at Stanford. And before he got hurt, there was talk of Bryce Love going like round one or two in the NFL draft, if I recall correctly. And he was a Heisman Trophy finalist in 2017. But none of these guys likely really scare you away from Antonio Gibson. But right now, you know, they kind of round out this competition. I think if drafts were today, we'd have to expect that Peterson would start and get the main workload on early downs, and Gibson would be sprinkled in as a change of pace back, like he was at Memphis, and probably be the team's third down passing back. But we've seen Adrian Peterson simply not be a passing game contributor. And he never really has been, if we're being honest. But working against this backfield and working against Antonio Gibson, however, are some major concerns beyond the players themselves. First, the football team is not likely to be any good. So Washington, they may be 6-10 and 10 this season. I think their Vegas over-under is like 5.5. So how valuable is that early down roll going to be in the second half of games when they're usually trailing? They don't expect to have a good quarterback. The jury's still out on Dwayne Haskins. Obviously, he's still young, but it was not a promising rookie season. So this is a bottom half offense. And, and most likely, and actually Mac T- Mike Taglier did of fantasypros.com did great research on this last offseason. Offenses that rank in the bottom half of the league in total yards rarely support a running back that finishes in the top 12. So if you think Washington offense is going to be bad or below average, which I do, then the upside of whoever wins this running back job is capped. Because when the offense is bad, it affects things like scoring opportunities, among other, among other things, sustaining drives, plays per game, positive game script, all that will be limited. And thirdly, the offensive line is troubling. The right side of the unit is okay, even solid, I'll say. But the left side, Trent Williams is gone, Donald Penn is gone, Eric Flowers at left guard is gone. So the starters are going to be determined via camp competition. And Cornelius Lucas, Sadiq Charles at LSU at left tackle, you know, Wes, Wes Schweitzer at left guard. I mean, I honestly don't know. It's problematic. And finally, the Washington football team could bring in competition. Devonta Freeman, Lamar Miller, I keep bringing them up. They're still looking for work. We could, I, I doubt they're going to go into the season not being on a team this year. And we could also see surprise cuts next month. What if Leonard Fournette is a surprise cut? And the Washington football team pounces on that. So I think my advice is, you know, don't have tunnel vision here and think that Washington is just stuck with these guys and that somebody will have to emerge from the current roster. Certainly no guarantee there. So in terms of how I'm approaching this Washington backfield, I'm likely not. And yes, you can say it's a cop-out. And yes, there are plenty of breakout backs that come from uncertain backfields. But this isn't Tampa Bay, where the offense is led by Tom Brady. This isn't San Francisco with Kyle Shanahan's great running game. Two winning teams right there. This isn't even the Rams with Sean McVay. I'm not advocating avoiding backfields just because they are unclear and the, and the water is muddy. I'm saying that the... In the late rounds, when you're trying to find breakout running backs, I prefer the muddy backfields where if a runner does win out and he earns the lead role, that he's in a situation to thrive, like Raheem Mostert was last year in San Francisco. And I'm not sure Washington provides that. And I think that Antonio Gibson, based on the expert hype that we've already seen this offseason, even before Darius Geis was cut, I think the cost is going to be prohibitive for me personally. So I hate to say this because your fantasy analysts are typically the worst when they're like, oh, yeah, we'll see. Um, okay, what are they paying you for? You're paid to make predictions, so do it. 
But for me, I'm avoiding Adrian Peterson and Gibson, at least until we can get more clarity in camp. And if anything, I may, I may make a last round dart throw to Bryce Luff. He might not even make the team, but there are worse uses for your final pick. And another bit of news, speaking of unsettled or unclear backfields, the Mercury News reports, that's San Francisco there, uh, that Jarek McKinnon has looked sharp running routes in the first few days of dra- training camp. Now, it's worth noting that the pads are not on yet, which is significant for Jarek McKinnon, who's, rec- who's re- coming back from that ACL tear and missed all of football last year. The 49ers have been getting McKinnon first-team reps on passing downs, however. And despite missing the last two years, you know he could have a larger role than expected to kind of complement Raheem Mostert and Tevin Coleman. And Kevin, Tevin Coleman and Mostert weren't going to do much in the passing game anyway, but this does hurt their upside because there was the chance that one of them could emerge as the passing down back. And if Jarrett McKinnon's that go-to passing down back, well, then you're only relying on rushing. It makes them much more attractive in non-PPR leagues and much more of a reason to fade them in full-point PPR leagues. So A.J. Green spent the offseason training to avoid the injuries he's dealt with the last two years. I'm going to say a bunch of these. I'm going to rattle off a bunch of this training camp news. There's a lot of it, but we're going to go through it and break it all down here. A.J. Green, he says, quote, we did more stuff in testing those ankles, learning how to land better. Just little things like that I didn't do in previous years. So A.J. Green trying to stay healthy this year after missing the last year and a half with injuries. Uh, I do like where he's going. 67th overall ADP still. I broke down why I think he's a sharp pick at cost in a previous episode. I can't recall the episode. They're all starting to kind of jumble it together. But it was in the news section at the beginning of one show. And by the way, I write all the players that I discuss in the descriptions of each episode. So if you're looking for AJ Green material, check out the details of each episode and you'll see uh, that it says something like, you know, Nick discusses AJ Green and then you can go track that episode. So, okay, next next topic. Dolphins beat writer Omar Kelly states that although he personally prefers Jordan Howard and backs like Jordan Howard, he believes based on what he's heard that the Dolphins will favor Matt Breida's Playing, t- playing style more than Jordan Howard's. And furthermore, possibly supporting this report is Dolphins running back coach Eric Studsville recently said that Jordan Howard's role, quote, hasn't been defined yet. And of course, this comes right after I mentioned that Matt Breida is a player that I won't be drafting at cost because the reasons I spelled out in my Yahoo Rankings Disagreement episode when I went on a huge rant about how Breida was drafted, being drafted way too high in those rankings. I think they had him at like 72 overall or something crazy like that. And now the Dolphins are moving to more of a spread-based offense under offensive coordinator Chan Gailey, leaving you know some concern over Howard's role. And I think Jordan Howard still projects to get the red zone snaps over Breida. And Breida has had injury history of his own, and Jordan Howard's been relatively... He's been relatively stable throughout his career, uh, but Howard offers next to nothing in the passing game. So if you think this offense is going to be pass happy, which they could be if Chan Gailey's history is any indication, and they could be if game flow is any indication because the Dolphins may stink, then yeah, maybe Matt Breida is the better target there. Either way, uh, I think the only Dolphins that I wouldn't mind drafting are Mike Jasicki and Devontae Parker uh, because I know that at least they're going to receive significant volume. So it's worth noting that Brian Flores, the head coach of the Dolphins, he comes from New England. So I think this will be, you know, kind of a Sony Michelle and James White situation, like over there in New England, where Jordan Howard plays the Sony Michelle role and Matt Breida plays the James White role. Obviously, if you're on a bad team 
and you're in a bad offense, kind of like the Patriots were at least towards the end of last season, none of them may return value. And it's certainly possible that the James White role is more valuable than the Sonny Michelle role in this offense with this team. But again, I'm not actively targeting either player. So next bit of training camp fluff here. According to Dr. Tal Risher, David Montgomery is weighing in this season at 222 pounds and 8% body fat. And this is a major improvement from last year where he was 223. Well, it's not a major improvement, doctor. I mean, that's only one pound difference. But he was at 12% body fat. So that is a difference there. Um, And we can expect a stronger, faster running back, he said, this season. That is good because David Montgomery really struggled with his transition to the NFL. And it was largely because he could not really elude anybody because he was too slow. And I hate to be harsh about it. David Montgomery, great tackle breaker, great balance, great strength. Um, He'll get the goal line work as he did last year. But he was too slow to kind of evade NFL speed uh, at that level. And so I'm glad he's been working on his speed. And I will say this about Montgomery. Here are two things that I like about him. And both have to do with his cost. Montgomery's ADP right now, 53rd overall, theoretically should be higher than his ADP last season, in my opinion. And it's not because Montgomery just had this great season, but last year's ADP was in the 40s and he was a rookie and he struggled out of the gate with the transition to the NFL uh, level. And the Bears offensive line, the QB situation can't be any worse. And the defense took a step back too. So at the very least, I think his ADP should be in the 40s. And second, I like his ADP because although I'd rather be drafting a wide receiver in round five where he's going, that doesn't mean that I always will. Right, like Because if I take Travis Kelsey or George Kittle in round two, or if I'm in a super flex and I take Lamar Jackson or Pat Mahomes in round two, or I'm picking late in round one and I take Michael Thomas or Devontae Adams, or maybe you know Zach Ertz or Mark Andrews in round four, basically all the scenarios where I spend an early pick or two on a nine running back, well then all of a sudden David Montgomery is this nice RB2, RB3 with a guaranteed workload. You know, There's a spot for him. He's a safe pick. So I'm not going to be aggressive to get David Montgomery as I was last season, which proved to be a huge mistake. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. But I do have a hard time envisioning that he'll be worse than last season. I think he'll be better. So I'll leave some drafts with David Montgomery on my team just based on the fact that the marketing that the market is undervaluing him alone. And I'm not thrilled about it. I'd probably rather have a wide receiver in round five, but I'm cool with it. Okay, next training camp note, a lot of fluff pieces here again. Cliff Kingsbury says that he expects Christian Kirk to have a much better season this year. And this is a common fluff piece that you'll hear by a lot of coaches. Is it fluff or puff? I don't know why I keep saying fluff. I guess like fluffing a player up, but also kind of puffing him. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I equate them to be the same, but either way, training camp is filled with these little blurbs that where coaches are high on certain players or this guy's in the best shape of his life, whatever. Uh, here's another one. Christian Kirk's coach thinks he's going to be better. That's great. What is he supposed to say that he thinks he's going to be worse? Probably not, but I do tend to agree with Cliff Kingsbury here. I also think Christian Kirk is going to be better this year. Last year, Christian Kirk uh, was a popular breakout pick. Uh, And he was going pretty late, probably like in the 80s, uh, I think. Uh, I don't remember, actually. I should have looked that up before the show. But Christian Kirk going, uh, he was going to, I I believe, 70s kind of at the earliest last year and maybe 80s or 90s at the latest. Um, I'll have to check that out. But 
Either way, his ADP is lower this year than it was last year. And Kirk, he actually started off as a PPR magnet in the first four games when the Cardinals were passing at a very high rate. And, you know, he was being used as a possession receiver. Many of his catches were at or near the line of scrimmage. So they didn't really amount to too much. They were kind of useless targets. I shouldn't say useless in PPR leagues, but they were they were not very productive. But then the Cardinals became more run-focused, and their running game started to gel with the new system that they were implementing. And Christian Kirk was deployed more down the field after he returned from restraining his ankle. And despite having the skill set to be a downfield target in this offense, Kirk really only had one blow-up game, and that was against Tampa Bay, where he had three touchdowns, like 130 yards. And pretty much every other game... After coming back from his ankle injury, he did minimal, minimal production. And Kirk, you know, had a lot of backing as a sleeper last year as a breakout candidate, like I said. Um, this year he's going at 102 overall as his ADP. And I'm behind Kirk on that cost. I will have Kirk on some of my teams. And I will rank him in a way that is above ADP, similar to David Montgomery. So readers who follow my draft guide will have a chance to land guys like Christian Kirk and David Montgomery. Uh, I think that Kirk will be... He'll benefit from a full offseason in the system. He'll benefit from, oh, you know what? I don't know why I just said that. He's not going to have a full offseason in the system because he really had no such thing as a full offseason in this COVID-19 season. But, but either way, Kirk, a full season in this system. And I think he'll also benefit from being healthy and not battling an ankle injury in season. And he'll also have the benefit of not facing number one cornerbacks. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Who will mostly be shadowing DeAndre Hopkins, and he'll have somewhat of a rapport with Kyler Murray, unlike DeAndre Hopkins. So if you're, you know, taking, if you're taking Christian Kirk after pick 100, which is technically where he's going, then I think you're playing this game right. So another running back along with David Montgomery that's going in round five is Mark Ingram. And when asked how... He'll deploy his running backs. Ravens offensive coordinator Greg Roman said that's going to happen on the fly every day in training camp. And Roman said the team will find ways to make it work. And he referred to this committee as a four-headed monster. And he will kind of evolve as we go. So this is not exactly a ringing endorsement or an indictment of, of, of Mark Ingram. He could have said something like, Ingram's our main guy, and the other guys will fight for roles behind him. But it sounds like he's open to competition. It's, I still expect Ingram to be the starter, obviously, but J.K. Dobbins is going to be fighting for work, and I think we're going to see more of a running back by committee this season. It's not exactly breaking news. That's why Ingram's ADP is not in round three, and it's in round five. But I find that I'm being more and more convinced that last season was the year for Mark Ingram. And you know, if you didn't pick him last year, then you, know, you missed the boat. I didn't pick Mark Ingham last year. I missed the boat. It's okay. It happens sometimes. I'd, I'd rather not. I'd rather just miss the boat and move on than to chase last year's stats. And Ingram may start the season early as the lead back in the most run-heavy offense in the NFL and most efficient running game in the NFL. However, it just seems like a matter of time before J.K. JK Dobbins is going to contend and fight into that workload. And I don't want to get to the fantasy playoffs you know, maybe on the back of Mark Ingram. And then by the time I'm there, you know, week 10 or week 10 through 17, let's say, all of a sudden it's a it's a total split. And J.K. Dobbins is the one used in the passing game. And Ingram is just kind of a touchdown or bust guy every week. Not to mention Mark Ingram's due for massive touchdown re- regression this year. 
because he scored 15 times last year. He scored five times through the air, five touchdown receptions on like, I don't know, I think he had like 20 targets last year or something ridiculously low like that. But anyway, moving on, the Athletics, Zach Kiefer says that, he's a Colts beat writer, he says that Jonathan Taylor is expected to share carries with starter Marlon Mack. And, and he continues by saying that don't be surprised if the rookie is a few breakout games and then Frank Reich stays with him. Yeah, this is kind of what all the experts are expecting. This is right in line with what pretty much everybody else thinks. Not that like Zach Kiefer isn't like, you know, oh, thanks for breaking real news there, Zach Kiefer. But no, not like that. But it's just he's just kind of confirming what the consensus thought is on Jonathan Taylor. Taylor is going uh, right before David Montgomery and, and Mark Ingram, usually around in round four. Uh, but the expectation is that Jonathan Taylor will split the workload with Marlon Mack, at least for the first couple games of the season. Frank Wright has alluded to giving Marlon Mack that veteran deference or that veteran treatment, and especially because of the shortened offseason. It may do- take Jonathan Taylor um, a few games before he does override and eventually will win out on this job which is very lucrative behind a Colts offensive line, which is one of the best in the league, and behind uh, an aging quarterback in Phillip Rivers. They're going to want to run the ball. So so Jonathan Taylor will eventually have a lot of value in the season, but it's just unclear how much value you'll have. The other reason, if it was just Marlon Mack that he was competing with and eventually he was going to overtake Mack, you would say, okay, well, maybe he should be drafted in round late round two, early round three. Like, that was the situation with Clyde Edwards-Elair before Damian Williams opted out. Jonathan Taylor, arguably more talented, I would say. But the difference is that Jonathan Taylor does not project to catch a lot of passes, right? He 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 had eight drops on, on around 50 targets in, in his last collegiate season. He was never really used. I think he had eight catches in his first two years at Wisconsin. So Jonathan Taylor, we expect him to seed passing down work to and Marlon Mack to seed passing down work to Naheem Hines as Philip Rivers kind of uh, poor man's Austin Eckler there in Indianapolis. So last bit of news here, Alan Lazard. You don't even know my real name. I'm the lizard king. Overwhelming favorite to be the number two receiver opposite of Devontae Adams, according to Sports Illustrated Bill Huber. And the article, his article goes on to say that the team uses clips uh, of the Lazard King in film sessions because of the Lazard King's effort. And he's known to be a great run blocker. And that run blocking does not get you fantasy points. But with old school coaches like Matt LaFleur and like this Green Bay staff is, they want to they want to pound the rock. Who cares if you have Aaron Rodgers at quarterback? It gets you on the field. Run blocking does. And an effort does. And being on the field gets you the opportunity to recruit fantasy points. So I like... The Lazard King as a sleeper this year. His ADP is 176 overall, so he's basically free. But we're going to see that climb, especially now that Devin Funches has opted out. I think we're going to see the Lazard King go up to the 130s. Um, but this could easily be a situation like Marcus Valdez-Scantling last year where his ADP climbed up to like around 110 overall. And he did abs- just solely based on the fact that he was the number two receiver for Aaron Rodgers' Green Bay Packers. But then obviously... Uh, MVS did absolutely nothing last season. So it could be that situation. But yeah, I, I like Lazard taking a, a late round flyer on him as a sleeper. So, okay, that was a ton of fantasy news. And that is what happens in training camp. A lot of 
fluff slash puff pieces there. And we do have Instagram questions to get to today. But before we do that, I do believe my website, fantasylawguy.com, is going live at some point this week. We're working out the kinks here. It will be an awesome resource for your fantasy drafts. I'm posting a massive document with contextualized game logs and a lot more. I'll explain what that is later. And once my website is up, I'll be using my Instagram more for fantasy football. Again, you can find me there at fantasy law guy. And we're about to do these Insta questions. A reminder, you can also hit me up with your questions and you can message me on Instagram and ask your fantasy football questions. And I'll do my best to answer the good ones on the show. And so what everybody else is waiting for is the fantasy law guide, which is this year's 2020 fantasy draft guide and with my rankings and draft strategy that will be posted uh, on August 25th. It's later this year because I am working, uh, you know, still trying to work this podcast. I just started it. I am trying to create the website and everything like that. And it's also later this year because drafts are going to be typically uh, the vast majority of drafts are going to be after August 25th. Most are going to be in September, I imagine, just because of the unique uh, challenges that COVID presents itself. We don't. N- n- there's a lot of uncertainty here. So let's do those Instagram questions. Okay, first question is from at on the down low from San Antonio, and she asks, "How early would you take Lamar Jackson or Pat Mahomes?" Now I'm assuming that she means in a regular one quarterback league. Because if you play in a super flex, I think the answer is different, right? In super flex leagues, getting a lot more popular, definitely the way of the future. And Lamar Jackson and Pat Mahomes will go a lot higher, maybe even around one. And they'll actually go pretty high in regular leagues as well. And I hate when I'm reading expert mock drafts and they have Lamar Jackson and Pat Mahomes like taking around four or five because it's just so unrealistic. It will never happen in your drafts. And in fact, if any... If any one, if any one of you, if anyone who listens to this podcast does a draft where Pat Mahomes or Lamar Jackson go after round three, so round four or above, send me a screenshot of that because I would like to see that. I'll be stunned if that happens in any of the drafts that any of my listeners participate in. And I don't blame the experts for. Don't get me wrong. I don't blame the experts for you know drafting them in the 40s and 50s. I blame the system. I mean, we are obviously as an industry needing a change. To fantasy football, we need to change the superflex. That needs to be mainstream when you see the two best players and the two most valuable players in the National Football League go in the 40s and 50s in fantasy expert mock drafts. I mean, what does that tell me? It tells me that fantasy football needs to be changed to put more value on quarterbacks, the most important position in all the sports. But I'll save this superflex rant for later. I'm very passionate about incorporating superflex, and I recommend every league implements that format this year. It is the future of fantasy football. But I'm going to answer your question. Regular boring one quarterback leagues, I'm going to say at the, I thought about this a lot and I wanted to give an answer like the experts and be like, oh, I wouldn't grab a quarterback. I'm a late round quarterback guy. You know, I wouldn't grab one until rounds four or five. But then I actually really thought about it and I put some time into it and I want to rank players the way that I would actually draft them. And I would actually draft Pat Mahomes or Lamar Jackson if they made it back to me, if I had a really early pick, like a top three pick, like around that round two or round three turn in a 12-team league. And I, I again, I thought about it for a while, and it's just it's unlikely that you will get them if you use my rankings and you wait until pick 24-ish to grab one of them. They'll likely be gone. But the question is, where would I pick them? And that's probably the spot. 
I think a lot of experienced players will scoff and say that's too early. Quarterback is so deep. It's a one-quarterback league. You just draft a quarterback late. You know, how can you pass on running back there, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they're right to suggest that. And I usually subscribe to this philosophy as well. But I also think there's a strong chance that Pat Mahomes could be the next Peyton Manning, like at least a fantasy football where year in, year out, top five quarterback with the upside of 40 touchdowns. And Lamar Jackson. Sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. Other than Chris McCaffrey, maybe league MVP for fantasy football last year. He's basically Michael Vick. Remember that year that Michael Vick was drafted in the first round uh, of like every draft after he came and had that 12 game season where he had a probably a similar similar sample to what Lamar Jackson did all of last season. Lamar Jackson was even better. But Lamar Jackson is basically Michael Vick who can actually throw accurately. And that is a very scary thought. And he can win you your week in any given week where Lamar Jackson can be the QB1 or put up you know 35 fantasy points. So it's nice in theory to say, yeah, it's smarter to take Kenny Galladay or Allen Robinson or DJ Moore over Lamar Jackson and Pat Mahomes. And maybe it's even smarter. But in practice, you know, I'm just being honest with you guys, I wouldn't do it. Honestly, I, I'm just, I'm realistically putting myself in the situation. I'm on the clock after going Christian McCaffrey. Uh, you know, I pick one, maybe Barkley or Zeke picks three. I'm staring at Lamar Jackson or Pat Mahomes at the very end of round two or, or even the beginning of round three. I don't think I'm passing. So I'm not going to rank them that way. My ranking should be based on where I'd actually, what I would actually do in the situation. And to give a more, even more actionable response, because every draft is different, and I don't know who's going to be available at 24 in your draft. Maybe there are some players that I would take over those quarterbacks. So I like spitting out some hypos, some scenarios, so you can kind of get a better feel for my answer. I, I prefer taking the two elite tight ends, Travis Kelsey and George Kittle, over the elite quarterbacks in one quarterback leagues. So taking Jackson and Mahomes, it would have to be after Kittle and Kelsey are gone. And I... I prefer most of the round two running backs, like Kenyon Drake. Boy, I'm really starting to dislike the Drake. Hate the Drake. <laughs> Joe Mixon, Chubb, Eckler, Josh Jacobs, Miles Sanders, obviously Edwards E. Lair. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel-Air. And, and I also prefer, I also prefer Julio Jones and Tyree Kill over those quarterbacks. And I mean, honestly, I think if you count all those players up, it really puts you around pick 23-ish and onward. And I especially love the security of getting those top three running backs. And then I'll feel even more comfortable taking a quarterback in round two or three. And I'm excited if I can get Lamar Jackson or Pat Mahomes in round three. Like I'm talking about late round two here, like last couple picks in round two. But if he makes it to round three, if one of them makes it to round three, I'm pulling the trigger. And I feel like that is stealing to me. But again, I do think they'll typically go late in round one in casual drafts or super flex leagues and probably mid round two in most of your competitive drafts. Um, but I hope that helps. Okay, so next question is from Bo in Mandeville. He says, is there anyone in round one that you think is going to be a bust? The answer is yes. Well, I don't know about total bust, but there is one player with an ADP in round one that I'm not even considering. And I don't want to spoil my next show. So tune into next episode, NFC Players to Avoid. For that answer there, Bo. Uh, and there's a hint. He is in the NFC. So next question, final question. This is from Eric from Houston. And he asks, how do you feel about stacking or drafting a quarterback-receiver combo? And how do you feel about stranger combos like running back, 
wide receiver on the same team? Do you avoid that is his question. So this is a great question. You know, stacking is a very popular DFS concept that increases your upside and improves your chances of winning in these big daily fantasy tournaments. But stacking isn't the traditional, it's technically not the traditional QB slash wide receiver combo of getting a quarterback and wide receiver on the same team from a season-long perspective. Stacking is is more extreme than that. It's, it's a DFS principle, and usually, and it's when you draft pretty much the three key players in an entire offense. Stacking is like going three or more players in the same offense and hoping for an explosion of that whole offense of sorts. For example, drafting Ezekiel Elliott in round one and then drafting Dak Prescott and Michael Gallup. Giddy up. That would be a Cowboys stack. And you can do different strategies in DFS. You can stack players like from the same game, like similar, like opponents of each other, and hope that the game is a shootout. And you've got a bunch of players playing the game. Maybe it goes into overtime. And I'm a huge fan of stacking in DFS. In fact, if you're doing DFS lineups, which I know is illegal in Louisiana, if you're doing DFS lineups, not for long, maybe in the next two years it'll be legal. Um, but if you're doing DFS in other states and you're listening to this, I personally don't think you should have a lineup without some sort of either stack or combination in it. But in season-long leagues, it's a little different because I, I think, and I think what Eric is asking here is about season-long leagues, and and that is about combinations. So quarterback, you know, receiver combos like Matt Ryan to Julio Jones. Julio, get the stretch. Or quarterback tight end combos like Lamar Jackson and Mark Andrews. And I like combos and even stacking in, in season-long leagues to a lesser extent, though. Uh, and the, t- the negatives that people associate with this type of strategy, like what if they bust or what if the quarterback gets hurt, then it ruins two or three players on your team, not just one. Or what if they have a bad day, you'll probably lose. You know, those are all true arguments. They're all valid, I should say. But I think the concerns are overblown. Because if you have to take chance, you do have to take chances if you're trying to win your league. Remember, if this is just about finishing in the top half of your league, or this is about just beating one other person, or you just, you know, made a bet with your friends that you just want to finish sixth or sixth place or higher in your league and not or maybe your goal is just to not be last place. Maybe you suck at fantasy football, it's your first year playing, and your goal is just to avoid your league's last place punishment, maybe you're the taco of your fantasy football league, then yeah, maybe I wouldn't put a lot of eggs in one basket. Maybe I wouldn't stack your team with similar uh, players on the same team there. Maybe I wouldn't go for expensive combos of players on the same team. But the goal for most people is to get first out of 10 or 12 or whatever have you. And one of the great ways to increase your odds of winning, not just doing well enough, but actually winning Getting first is to gain correlation with a great stack or a great combo. So I don't typically force it in season-long leagues, Eric, but I do prefer it. And I sometimes use it as a tiebreaker. So let's say I've drafted Amari Cooper already, and I can't decide between Dak Prescott and Deshaun Watson. I want to take a quarterback here. And I'm going to take Dak in that scenario just so I can get the combo. If I, if I see those quarterbacks as relatively even. As long as the combo isn't too expensive, I like stacking your combos because if you have an expensive stack, let's say one that costs you two or three very high draft picks, like let's say you want a Chiefs stack or a Chiefs combo and you have to take Tyreek Hill in round one and Pat Mahomes is round two, you probably can't even get Kelsey. So you can't even really stack or Clyde Edwards later. So you can't even really stack the Chiefs if you try. But let's say you want like a Cardinals stack and you have to take DeAndre Hopkins in round one and Kenyon Drake in round two, or, and then Kyler Murray in round five or six, well then, yeah, if Murray does go down, 
or the Cardinals offense gets figured out or whatever whatever happens, your season is likely over because the is the upside of drafting three prominent Cardinals players in rounds one, two, and five really worth it in season-long leagues? Maybe in like a big best ball tournament because there will be less exposure to that type of stack. But in season-long with just 11 other teams, probably not. But inexpensive stacks or combos that may hit, like for example, like a Saints stack of Michael Thomas in round one, Drew Brees and Jared Cook in round like seven and eight. That could be awesome. And that could really help you win your league if obviously if the Saints have a great passing year and that could easily happen. And if it doesn't pan out, you can still compete because the investments weren't that high. Like if it's a one quarterback league, you can replace Drew Brees with a streaming option. There's so many other quarterbacks, the position's so deep. And Jared Cook, you know, you spent like an eighth round pick on him. Okay, you can stream the tight end position too. And Michael Thomas, we've seen if Drew Brees goes down, then he's still really good. Like we saw with Bridgewater last year, his numbers didn't even get affected. And also Jameis Winston is a great fantasy backup. So yeah, Saints stack actually makes a lot of sense. It's very safe. And you can still win your league if it flops because the cost of accruing that stack of getting Michael Thomas, Drew Brees, and Jared Cook is rounds one, seven, and eight, as opposed to the Cardinal stack I just mentioned, which is rounds one, two, and five. So stacks or combos like that are awesome. Like inexpensive combos, you know, I love. Like Julio Jones and Matt Ryan, you know, maybe even throw Calvin Ridley in there in round four. You know, that's a huge stack. I mean, that's a lot in the Falcons offense, but that's a good offense to be stacking, even in season-long leagues. You know, Jared Goff or, and Robert Woods or Jared Goff and Cooper Cup. The highest investment, even if you want to do that three-person stack, is a fourth-round pick. So that's great. And then on the lighter side, you know, maybe like a Carson Wentz or Zach Ertz combo. Maybe if you're not into stacking, maybe you just want the combo, the receiver, I mean the quarterback-receiver combo, the quarterback-tight-end combo. You know, Russ Wilson. His name, his name's Mr. 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 Unlimited. Yeah, you got to be unlimited. I just mentioned him solely so I could play that new soundbite right there. You knew that was coming at some point. Uh, that's so great. And uh, and DK Metcalf. So Mr. Unlimited and DK Metcalf, and then or maybe Joe Mixon in round two, AJ Green in round six, and then Joe Burrow as your backup quarterback. And he's basically free in drafts. So these are the type of combos and stacks that I like in season-long leagues, and I definitely support. And I prefer just combos of two in season-long, but I'm not opposed to stacking of three. I think it's more of a DFS strategy, but I'm not opposed to it if you get the right offense and it's inexpensive. But I can I can get behind either. You know, I think it's an extremely underutilized strategy, and I do think that the correlation helps. And when you look at past champions in your league, you'll probably find that a higher percentage of their teams than you think has some sort of stack, either three players on an offense or some sort of combo at least. Because whenever there's a great offense, you know, like that Patriots 07 offense, I remember this is one of my favorite fantasy stories to tell. This guy, and his name was Zach, and he was a good buddy of mine, and he was in a uh, competitive league of 12 of us. It was, for, it was a low-stakes league, but he was kind of... I don't want to call him the taco of the league because he actually did quite well. But in terms of his knowledge of fantasy football, he was way below par uh, for this fantasy football league. But one year in 2007, he drafted like all Patriots. He drafted like Tom Brady, Randy Moss, Ben Jarvis Green Ellis, um, 
or maybe it was Lawrence Maroney, I've forgotten. And he had like Dante Stallworth on his team. He had the Patriots defense. We had a defensive player in that league, and he had Mike Vrabel as his one defensive player and his linebacker. And I, I kid you not, he probably had six starting Patriots in his starting lineup. And that was the year that the Patriots had the greatest offense at, in the history of the league at the time when they went undefeated in the regular season. Tom Brady you know, had that career year with Randy Moss and just kind of broke records there. And he had Moss and Brady on his team alone, but he also had all these other Patriots players. And I think there was like his other, two of his other starters, I want to say two or three of his other starters were Colts players, like Joseph Adai and like, I think Reggie Wayne or something like that. So his entire lineup was basically two teams, the Colts and the Patriots. And it ended up, you know, the guy just wrecked the league. I mean, Zach did. He won the league by like such a long shot. Nobody could touch him. And there are obviously, you know, that could have gone poorly, of course. So you got to be smart with your stacks. But it's just one example. When you go look back at your championship teams, you will usually find that a lot of them did have, you know, some sort of combo or some sort of stack. Maybe not as extreme as Zach's uh, with his Patriots stack, but some sort of there. So yeah, it's a it's a strategy I support in in season long and definitely in D, DFS and daily fantasy sports. So so yeah, let's end the show with a fantasy nugget. And today's fantasy nugget of the day comes from Derek Brown of FTN. That's at Debro underscore FFB on Twitter. And he says during his six years in Houston, Bill O'Brien's offense has never finished outside the top 12 in rushing attempts. Never finished outside the top 12 in rushing attempts in his six years in Houston. So volume could be coming for David Johnson. And that is your fantasy nugget of the day. Could David Johnson be featured in my NFC players to avoid? We will find out next episode. And that will conclude today's episode. So be sure to listen to episode 14, which is the previous episode. That's AFC players to avoid. And be sure to listen to next episode. Is Next up is NFC players to avoid. And that's going to be a controversial one for sure. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, do me a favor. Hit subscribe. Give me a positive review, please. That helps so much. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. See you.